What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I am Jordan, joined with Jared, and today we're going to be talking about Jesus and Caesar. Two people that I'm sure come right to mind, right next to each other. And you mentioned one, you can't really talk about one without talking about the other. Uh, so, <laughs> not really. On this channel, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we spend a lot of time ragging on mythicists. You know, they're in our camp of like skeptics, allegedly, and atheists. So, you know, we like to be critical of our own side, so to speak. Uh, but that also means we end up talking a lot about how good the evidence for Jesus of Nazareth's existence is. And we think it is good evidence. Uh, but we thought we might mix it up and go the other way because we often hear people uh, go too far in the other direction, saying that not only is the evidence that Jesus existed good, but it's better than anyone else in the ancient world, right? And usually the person they pull up is Julius Caesar, though there are others. Yeah, this is insane because this isn't like a rare thing. Like I was having a conversation with somebody completely not, a, they found out I was an atheist and their go-to argument for uh, historicity was like, well, what about Caesar? Do you, do you think Caesar exists? Well, well, well there. have I got news for you? <laughs> yeah. So. Now, to be fair, uh, usually the people that we hear this argument from are like rank and file Christians, not so yes. much like professional apologists, but that's not to say that they never do it. So like the rank and file, I often hear like quoting like that Vadi Bakum video, uh, which I think we mentioned in a stream. It, you know him. He's the bigger uh, black guy who is like very, he's kind of moved to like more he's got attrition a kind of. Great voice too. <laughs> great, super, super baritone, excellent, yeah. very pleasing voice. Um, but he uh, talks about the manuscript evidence and stuff and he's not making this. There's my cat. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if he'll make an appearance. We just got a new cat name of Gamma. And so you may see him running around the screen. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Vadi Bakum has made a point similar to this, but uh, not not exactly this. People are misquoting him, but there's other people that you wouldn't have to misquote, such as Billy Graham. Uh, the the infamous, Billy Graham. The yeah. Billy Graham, uh, who said, quote, and this, this is a quote from his website. Mm -hmm. I didn't like quote mine this. This is like on the website with his name on it. There is more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than there is that Julius Caesar ever lived or that Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. Now, he's making an even stronger claim, right? Because the resurrection kind of presupposes that Jesus existed, right? Um, so clearly, this isn't just a rank-and-file thing. And there's other uh, sources. The CBN, which, got to be honest, had never heard about them before I was doing research for this episode. But they are... Uh, the Christian Broadcasting Network. And I, I had never heard of them, but they're associated with the 700 Club, which I've watched a lot of because my grandmother loved the 700 Club. <laughs> so I watched a lot of the 700 <laughs> Club growing up. Uh, but uh, so quoting them, uh, they are quoting Alex McFarlane, and they say, if we reject those Gospels, we would also have to reject a hundred other ancient names, the authenticity of which no historian would dream of questioning. Aristotle, Julius Caesar, people who don't have as much evidence for as we do for Jesus. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's where the argument like hinges on, right? Because when we talk about the evidence, they're like, well, <clears throat> if you believe in these, then you have to accept Jesus. Right. And not only you have to accept Jesus that Jesus existed is usually not the point of the argument. Right. Usually the point they're trying to make is that you should you should accept the gospel accounts because the gospels is how we know about Jesus. Right. Um, so there are others. Uh, uh, the Gospel Coalition, Daryl Bach, opens his article on this subject with a quote. Uh, well, he opens with the question, is the historical evidence for Jesus Christ as good as that of Julius Caesar? And then he closes with, if we believe what the best sources say about Julius Caesar, then we should believe what the best sources say about Jesus Christ. So that's and the that's point. the point, yeah. The sources, and we need to believe the sources. Right. It's a, kind of an argument, kind of from an analogy, or like kind of saying you'd be hypocritical to accept for Caesar, and you wouldn't accept for Jesus, right? Okay, yeah. so that's the argument. Uh, fortunately, this claim is pretty easy to check. Um, there's, It's not hard to find information about Julius Caesar. And it's not hard to find information about Jesus. So all we have to do is look at what the best evidence is for 
my cat and also for <laughs> the best. Well, we'll go to see what the best evidence is for Jesus and see what the best evidence is for Caesar and compare the two. So let's do that. Let's dive in. We'll start with uh, the good old T-posed rabbi, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Let's start with the evidence for him. So uh, starting at the top, works by Christians. Yeah, we got the Gospels, right? And we got Paul. Now, I will say, as much as we talk about how much good evidence there is for Jesus, there isn't that much good evidence for Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah. When we say there's good evidence, we mean like the evidence is good enough to establish that he probably existed, right? Right. But I mean, so it's like there's better evidence for Jesus than virtually everybody else who existed in the ancient world. <laughs> there's millions of people who lived and died and nobody yeah. knows who they are, right? So, but so we'll get into these uh, and you'll see that we're going to talk about what we can historically say and what to start at the top. So we have Paul, right? Paul's writing 20 years after Jesus. Um, he is uh, a contemporary, so to speak, of Jesus. And when we say contemporary, that just means like he they lived at the same time as the person in question. Correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's it. And then, but Paul is, from Paul's own handwriting, he never actually has any first count, first-hand encounters with Jesus. So everything we have from Paul is, is second-hand. So not, not the best evidence from historical. It's good. Paul but. met people who met Jesus. So Paul met with Peter and James, James being Jesus' brother, Peter being one of the disciples. So he knew people who knew Jesus, right? And only secondhand, so like one link. That's that's decent, right? And he tells us some biographical data about Jesus. That's the other part, yeah. Uh, not a ton, but he does say some. Um, he says things like he was born of a woman, born under a law, which, I mean, there's no other option than being born of a woman. But, you know, we we talked about this a bit um, in yeah. our previous episodes. Uh, so he unlike does give the, some biographical information. Yeah, but unlike the Gospels, the point of Paul's writing is not to recount Jesus's life and ministry. It's to speak to the churches that he was having issues with. So, but, right. you know, who does speak to the life and ministry of Jesus are the Gospels. Yep. And that's probably our best evidence, uh, historically speaking. So the Gospels, uh, contrary to a lot of opinion, they are anonymous. Nobody said, hey, I, Jared, am writing this story about Jesus because I knew Jesus and I lived with him on 27 Baker Street. Like, we don't have anything like that. But Jared, it says right there, the, gas- the Gospel of Matthew. Right, th- It's on the page. Well, we, we do have that. <laughs> Most of those are attributed later on in Christian tradition, and we'll actually get into that here in just a second. But the Gospels um, are written about 70 to 100, maybe 110 if you really stretch it, but somewhere 70 to 100 is a safe bet. Four Gospels in order. Mark is first, written in the 70s uh, CE. Matthew and Luke written about the same time in the 80, maybe 90 time frame, maybe. Um, and John is generally taken to be the last 90s, may, maybe early second century. Though recently I heard an interesting argument that Luke may have used Josephus, which would have pushed him further back. But, it's, you know, yeah, but um, but late first, maybe early second century. You may be asking yourself, well, what about Q? Uh, well, Q is a hypothetical document that and that is the sayings of Jesus. Uh, it's called Q because it's I think it's German for Quelle. Um, which is source in German. Yeah. So. But we don't have any actually historical evidence that Q actually existed. It's a hypothetical document. And some scholars actually argue that Q is just yeah. made up. It's just stuff that Luke stole from Matthew. So so basically, the first three Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and uh, Luke, they certainly use each... Well, so Mark came first. Matthew and Luke definitely used Mark. No question about it, right? Uh, Luke and Matthew have stuff in it that didn't come from Mark. And so the question is where they get that stuff. Some of it is unique to them, right? So you've got M and L, whatever their unique source was. Um, and then some of it is shared and they're mostly sayings. And so some people think that they, the shared source that they have that we no longer have is Q. Even if you don't like Q, they had some source in common, whether Luke used Matthew or whatever, you know, some way all they, they were all copying each other and also drawing from whatever oral tradition around them or something. So, but we're still talking about 40 years after the fact, if we assume that Jesus died around 30. So are they contemporaries? Well, maybe. I mean, we don't know who wrote them. So contrary to, like you said, contrary to popular belief, they are anonymous. There are no names attached to these gospels when they're written. 
Um, they were anonymously reported at first. The names don't get attached to them until the second century. And uh, so decades after they are written. And uh, one of the first, the sources are, I think, dubious mm. to be generous. <clears throat> dubious indeed. Yeah. So we pulled this from from that article that Jordan mentioned earlier um, from, um, what's the guy's face? Um, Daryl Bach. So oh, okay. from the article that Daryl Bach uh, wrote about talking about the sources for Jesus and, and uh, Caesar, he mentions it, makes a comment in there. He says, quote, it is well-established tradition tied to Papias in the early second century, end quote, that Mark used Peter and Luke uses Paul. So he's right. saying this is established tradition. Well, So the traditional uh, authorship is Mark is the secretary of Peter. Yes. And Luke is the traveling companion of Paul, who Paul didn't know Jesus anyway, but whatever. Uh, that That is the tradition. It, it is well established that that's the tradition. <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, it's not even that well established because Papias does mention Mark and Peter, but he doesn't mention anything about Luke and Paul in the writings. And I think it's important to point out, too, that we don't actually have Papias. We have other church fathers later who are quoting Papias, and we can kind of reconstruct some of it, but we don't have the original Papias. So he, he might have said it somewhere else. But So um, we won't spend a ton of time on this, uh, but Papias, there's reasons to think he may not have been reliable. For instance, he reports some things which are crazy, like uh, that Judas's head swolled up to the point where like you couldn't drive, a, like it, it would fill up an area that a cart couldn't drive through. Yeah, it's, it's, just... it's just nuts stuff. And like the... That there's all kinds of stuff you can go in there. Bart Ehrman has a, a article on it if you want to learn more about that. But there's reasons to suspect that Papias isn't reliable. Also, Papias, when he does mention the Gospels, it's not clear he's talking about the Gospels that we have. So, uh, for example, when he's talking about Matthew, he it was he doesn't quote either Gospel that he talks about, Mark or Matthew, right? And so there's no way to nail it down. And Matthew, he says, was written in Hebrew. Um, originally, but we know that our Matthew was written in Greek. Um, yes. So was he, was he like looking at a Hebrew translation of Matthew and just got confused? Is he talking about an entirely different Matthew? It's impossible to know. And when he's talking about Mark, he basically says that Mark, so Papias says this about Mark, that Mark wrote down everything he knew about Jesus, and that was his the point of it. So he got it all from Peter, who was a disciple, and so he was just relaying everything he got. But if you read the Gospel of Mark, that's not somebody who's writing down everything. It's, it's the shortest gospel we have. Yeah. So some scholars think that there's another gospel out there uh, named Mark or, or it's misattributed. So but. so in any case, uh, the and there's other reasons to think that the traditional authorship is wrong because like these were illiterate peasants, you know, yeah. that they, they didn't. They're, they're almost that if you believe the, the biblical accounts. They explicitly call them unlettered, uh, but even just like the vast majority of people didn't read or write. And it's not like you could go to like night school in the ancient world that it wasn't a thing. You had to be wealthy to get literate. And you did that when you were a kid, typically. So and there's and these are not like uh, just random, you know, what like kind of crude stories written in Greek. These are highly literate Greek works of literature, you know. Yeah. It's not something like a guy's like just just taking down notes. These these are like highly developed Greek works of literature. So, uh, for for a variety of reasons, there's reasons to doubt why wh whether or not they were written by any kind of eyewitness or even knew an eyewitness. And that's important because it undercuts the reliability of what's said within the gospel. So when Christians are saying that we have this great evidence for the life of accounts of Jesus, like we have some evidence and they're the gospels, but how reliable are they? Like they're not firsthand accounts. Jesus didn't write them himself. So they're not as reliable as what we would right. want. Right. Right. They are as ancient documents go pretty early. I mean, being written just a couple of decades after it happened, that's not that far away. Uh, but that's still plenty of time for stuff to be made up. So is it early enough for them to have details about Jesus life that are real? For sure. Is it, late enough that legends could come in and that could happen next week. So, you know, definitely. Yeah. Well, in that same article um, by Daryl Bach, he says that the earliest manuscripts, we start getting them within decades after Jesus' death. And so I'm like, 
wait a second here. Within decades? Like the manuscripts, not the not that they were written, but the actual yeah. manuscripts that we, that we have, that we possess. And a manuscript, just so you know, is a document that is written, manuscript, kind of manual writing, yeah. right? In hand. <laughs> yeah, something that a papyrus or vellum or whatever, something that somebody wrote on. So our earliest uh, fragment that we have, our earliest manuscript is uh, P52. And it's dated around 125 AD. And Jordan has a picture up here on the screen. Um, now, for you English people, I'm glad you put the conversion in there because centimeters don't mean anything to me. <laughs> you silly Americans <laughs> made up units. Yeah, so P52 is about the size of a credit card. It's nine centimeters by six and a half centimeters or three and a half by two and a half inches. Um, it has a little bit of John on it, front and back. Um, now, what is on there accords pretty well like matches what we currently have so like we can say that our gospel of john those parts haven't changed significantly since this fragment was made it's great right um and but that's definitely still like way that that's a almost well at least just under or more than a century after jesus death you know? yeah i mean so. not not decades and furthermore when you hear christians talk about this what they'll talk about is they'll say figures like and Vadi Bakum's really popular with this. He goes, we have more than 5,800, you know, separate um, manuscripts. So they start spitting off all these numbers. Okay, but do we, though? And, and also, keep in mind, that's a manuscript. Yeah, like, so it's not like a manuscript of John is like the book. It's any piece of John at all. Yeah, so you also have P90 on the screen here, which is another fragment from John, like, that thing is just tatters, man. Like, right. uh, so but it counts. It it, it, does, it counts, counts as a manuscript. manuscript. So you could have you could have a hundred of these, but their argument goes: we have so many early manuscripts that the, we can right. say, say that they're extremely reliable. Five thousand manuscripts, and they date back to the second century or whatever the early second century. Which both of those things are true statements. We have so many thousands of manuscripts, and some of them date to the second century however the distribution is maybe not what they're yeah. communicating there this is what so, they don't show you <laughs> right. so if you're listening on audio we have uh, you should probably flip over to youtube seeing this you've probably seen this if you watch bar to ehrman talk it's just a distribution of manuscripts but you can see that very few of them are there's none first century there's four second century and then you've got you know 50s on to the eighth century and then it starts picking up in the Middle Ages. What happened with, in the Middle Ages, Jordan? Uh, well, Christianity had taken over uh, Europe, is well <laughs> yeah. established, and then they had like, so you had the church, who was then professionally writing down and prescri uh, preserving these manuscripts. So like, yes. of course, most more of them are being pres preserved. There's more people, more effort being put into preserving it. And also it's, you know, a century later. Please don't hit my <laughs> cat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so there's more effort being put in to preserve it. And so, but the argument, just because we have a lot of copies of the same thing, doesn't mean that the original was accurate. And now we're not trying to say that the original is not accurate, but we're trying to undercut this argument because it's usually put forth in a manner to make it seem like we have 5,000 manuscripts that date back to the decades within but Jesus. The vast majority of those manuscripts are medieval, right? So yes. the vast and overwhelming majority of the manuscripts we have of the Bible come from the Middle Ages, which is fine. I mean, what those manuscripts can tell us uh, the, the the quantity and variety of manuscripts we have can give us a, a good degree of certainty that the version of the Gospels we have today is similar to the Gospels as they were previously written. Not identical, there are errors, but because we can see this, this huge amount of manuscripts over the centuries in the various other traditions, and they all pretty closely align with each other with some differences that can give us, okay, it's unlikely that this was massively rewritten at any point in this history. That doesn't tell you anything about whether it was accurate to begin with. It certainly doesn't tell you anything about what it was like in the first second, first and second century, right? Like Right, which so. is exactly when, before things were written down, when things, the story is most likely to change. Yeah. So those are our gospels. Um, the only other sources we have outside of the Bible are Josephus, which we've talked about extensively on this channel in dealing with mythicism. And so there's two references 
to Jesus. If you want more information about those, I recommend you go back and check out our Mythicist uh, episodes. Yeah. But uh, one of them is highly contested as whether or not that's mentioning Jesus. And the, the other one... The yeah. Testimonium Flavianum is the contested one, which Josephan scholars... The majority of them would say it mentions Jesus to some extent, but to what extent is debated. But you can make a good argument for it also being completely made up. Yeah. The other one is a mention of J Jesus' brother, James, and that one is not contested by Josephine scholarship. Very few people contest its authenticity, and you can't, uh, can't have a brother if he didn't exist. And it also corroborates what Paul says. So that's pretty good evidence that he existed, yeah. you know. But And our last one. Uh, outside the Bible is Tacitus. And uh, Tacitus was writing uh, at the beginning of the second century when this was done and the, his work on called the Annals, not the Annals, the Annals. And uh, he's basically talking a, a passage. It's in passing, actually. He's not specifically trying to go out of his way to mention Christians. He's talking about Nero doing the whole burning of the city and stuff. And he's blaming it on these Christians. And he goes, oh, by the way, these Christians, they were this people who believed in this guy, Christ. Christ was a guy who was killed by Pontius Pilate. And then boom, he goes on, continues the story. Yeah. Right. Basically Nero uses Christians as a scapegoat because people thought he burned down the city. And so Tacitus very briefly tells you who Christians are and then moves on. Yeah. And, and that's it. That's the now, only. We should say with Tacitus, he's considered a very good historian by modern historians. He was uh, tended to be even more so than his contemporaries skeptical of his sources. And if he did not believe or like had reason to doubt a source's like reliability, he would often say so. And like, so he would report with caveats. And so he doesn't do that here. So there's good reason to think that he had a reliable source of information. He's not writing that far away. He's in Rome. So he'd have access to records and, you know, so that there's, yeah, good enough to say, okay, he probably existed. This guy knew him. Cool. And so let's just recap that. So we have, we're not here to talk about the reliability of the gospels. We can get into that into a different time, but we have four gospels who mentioned Jesus. We have Paul who briefly mentions Jesus in like the life bi biographical sense. We have Josephus, one highly contested and one not so much. And then Tacitus in passing. That's it. Okay. Yep. That's and now we can go to the non-manuscript evidence for Jesus. Okay, so that is the non-manuscript evidence for Jesus. <laughs> there isn't any uh, any evidence of inscription <laughs> statues and stuff. That all comes much later, uh, created by Christians for purposes of faith. And now, to be fair, that's not exactly like evidence against Jesus. I wouldn't expect them to erect statues of Jesus in the town square or anything. You know, he's just a rabbi. But anyway, there aren't any. So. so if that's our evidence for Jesus and Jesus, the evidence for Jesus is overwhelming compared to the evidence of Caesar, we shouldn't have much, right? No, the evidence for Caesar should be a couple people maybe mentioning him in passing and that would be it, right? Okay. Unfortunately, that is, well, I'd say fortunately, but unfortunately <laughs> for this argument, uh, that is not the case. So spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, if you failed uh, high school history, Julius Caesar, uh, full name Gaius Julius Caesar. Gaius was his given name, uh, like his first name. That would have been like a family name. Like people, people in his family would have called him that. Julius is the name of his like clans, kind of like being a Kennedy, you know. Um, and Caesar, the last name is it's called a cognomen. It's the third name, which originally was like a nickname, like you might earn or might be bestowed on you, but it eventually became hereditary. So it kind of like got used to like differentiate different portions of the clan. So, you know, you'd have like the Julius Caesars who are like that branch, you know, anyway, so that's the guy, uh, contrary to popular belief, he was not the first emperor of Rome. That distinction, uh, belongs to his great nephew and adopted son, Gaius Octavius, who you may know better as Caesar Augustus. Um, he came to power after Caesar was killed, stabbed to death. If you've ever like, uh, been frustrated with calendars and like why are they all out of order and the October isn't the eighth month and you've thought man I wish I hope the guy who did that got stabbed well you're in luck because he did <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, Julius Caesar was not emperor he was instead a dictator which was a title uh, that didn't have necessarily the negative connotations it does now at the time it was a person that the senate and the consuls who are like the people in charge of the senate um, they were like 
rotated in and out. You ran for election and like, you know, held games and gave bread to people to get their votes, just like today. Sort uh, of like a mouthpiece. Yeah. And so they were in charge, but they shared power. But sometimes having two people in charge doesn't get things done fast enough. Um, so the Senate and them could appoint a dictator who would be imbued with extraordinary power for the purposes of solving some crisis, uh, whether it was an invasion. Sometimes it was like uh, religious holidays that they had to do in a hurry or whatever. Something they deemed was important enough to give a guy like overwhelming power. Right. And then they would just give it up. I uh, think the dictatorships lasted a year. And then after that, like it could be renewed. But like. When your term was done, it was temporary, you'd give up and you'd go back to your life. Well, Caesar decided, you know, the temporary bit didn't work out for him so well. He kind of liked being in power. <laughs> and so he's just not going to give it up, you know? So he had himself appointed dicta uh, dictator perpetuo. It's a dictator for life. Um, at which point they decided in Rome he was acting like a king and the Romans had a big problem with monarchy. They had a history with kings in their ancient past, and they really, really didn't like them. They didn't want Rome to be a monarchy anymore ever again. And the Caesar guy is starting to be like a king. And so they killed him. Uh, his friend Brutus stabbed him on the floor of the Senate, a bunch of other people, et tu, Brute, that guy. Um, so they killed the dictator. Rome lived on as a republic. And after they dealt with the tyrant, everything was fine. Happy never, story. Never <laughs> happened again. Definitely. Not. <laughs> uh, yeah. So during his life, Caesar was a brilliant military commander uh, whose conquests roamed all over Gaul, modern day France being one of the, the most famous. So that's Caesar in a nutshell. So how do we know any of that stuff, right? How do we know that this guy existed at all? Well, let's go just like we did with Jesus. Let's look at writings. Let's look at writings by people who started with like contemporaries of, G of, of Caesar. Do we have any writings of someone who's contemporary? Would yourself be considered a contemporary? Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> would be contemporary to yourself. We have books written by Caesar, <laughs> by the dude. Now, written might be overemphasizing. There's some reason to believe he might have dictated. He was kind of... He was, well, he was a dictator, so... At the time, right? So uh, when he wrote uh, the Gallic Wars, the commentaries on the Gallic War, and he wrote it during the nine years he was fighting in Gaul, um, and he... The book detail or the books, it was a series of books he did like one a year and they detail like his campaign and they're kind of written in the style of like a report to the Senate, but they're clearly propaganda for Caesar, right? They're written to like, he was a politician in addition to being, you know, a uh, general. Look, so he's like, look how great I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, this war in Gaul is going awesome. And so like he puffs up his victories and kind of downplays his defeats a bit, but it is a source of the Gallic Wars, right? Um, written by the dude who prosecuted them. Um, and that's not all. That's not the only book he wrote. He wrote commentaries on a bunch of other military exploits he did. He did commentaries on the Civil War. That one's written in 46 BCE. And that summarizes the events of the Civil War between himself, Caesar, and his political enemies, principally Pompey. And uh, I won't go into all the history there. It's very interesting. I recommend you find a YouTube video about it. But basically, this was the war that led to Caesar becoming a dictator for life, where people are like, hey, I don't want you to be dictator. I'd rather be dictator. But eventually, Caesar won. Um, and so naturally, in this book, Caesar's a poor victim. You know, oh, this conspiracy, I had to do it. You know? <laughs> Definitely uh, all, all about propaganda. This is the war where Caesar crossed the river Rubicon which if you've ever heard the term like crossing the Rubicon as like a significant thing that you can't take back, you know, that's where this comes from. Because I thought that was George Washington. Uh, he did cross another river, uh, <laughs> a little bit less impressive, I think. But I also, this entire episode is just a thinly veiled excuse for me to talk about Rome <laughs> because I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of, <laughs> kind of a Rome geek. Uh, so anyways, uh, the, the Rubicon is a river that's a boundary between Gaul and Italy. And if you cross it with an army, you basically are invading Italy. And that's what Caesar did. So, uh, yeah. So those are, and, and those are just a couple. He has other, there are other writings too that we know of. There but those are of. the big ones. Yeah, those are the big ones. And um, when you say yeah. writings, like, make it clear that these aren't just like P52 manuscripts. Like no, these, are these, these are writings. Books. Now, yeah. we don't have full copies of all of these, but we do have like the, we have way more than a little scratch. <laughs> I'll say that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. Okay, so that's the most contemporary guy. 
Caesar himself, and we'll go into like the dates of these manuscripts in a minute. But uh, beyond that, it goes on. So other contemporaries would include Cicero. Marcus Tullius Cicero was a prolific author. This guy never stopped writing. He wrote at the same time as Caesar and wrote about him all the time. Uh, so one work is his uh, book Brutus, referring to that Brutus, the one who stabbed Caesar, but before he did the whole stabby bit. Um, it's uh, written in the year 46 BCE, and it's a history of Roman oratory. And he liked to write, Cicero liked to write in like dialogues. So we'd have like two characters like talking to each other, and that's how he would like frame his thing. And the so, original podcast. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, don't know if they wore bow ties, probably togas. Uh, so he praised Caesar's commentaries, uh, quote, indeed, said Brutus, his orations please me highly, for I have had the satisfaction to read several of them. He has likewise written some commentaries or short memoirs of his own transactions, which merit the highest approbation, for they are plain, correct, and graceful, and divested of all the ornaments of language. For in history, nothing is more pleasing than a correct and elegant brevity of expression. That's in Brutus 262. And sources will be in the description as always. Um, another section of the book similarly praises uh, Caesar's writings. And so not only do we have copies of the writings written by Caesar, we have writings of other authors who read the Gallic Wars at the time they were written. Right. So it's not we like they, they contemporaries writing it about the contemporary writings about. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, he wrote another book about oratory and that's also in 46. And he again, praised Caesar's writing style. Um, and then we have like letters. It's got, so Cicero actually, uh, published his letters in books. Mm. So like he, he like published copies of his letters. So, so we have like so many letters, you guys, so many, and a lot of them reference Caesar because Caesar was, as Wolf mentioned, like overthrowing the government. So it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'll give two examples out of a ton. Like there's a way more than I'm going to say. These are just two examples to show you like what these are like. So one of them is the letter to Atticus written in 48 BCE quote. I came at night to visit you in the midst of your giving me messages for Caesar about peace. You quite forgot your duty as a friend and took no thought of my interest. What are you doing over there? Are you waiting for a battle? That is Caesar's strongest point. So Caesar exists. Great general. Um, one more letter to his brother, Quintus, his, uh, Cicero's brother, Quintus. Our old regiment of loyalists is warm in its zeal and attachment to me. They are not uniting themselves with the loyalists from hatred of these despots, these despots being Pompey and Caesar. Pompey makes every sort of promise, and so does Caesar, but my confidence in them is not enough to induce me to drop any of my preparations. So there's a lot more, and importantly, not only do they mention Julius Caesar and talk about him, but they also talk about details that confirm other things we know about Caesar from other sources. So the list doesn't stop there. Oh, wait, uh, I thought that was it. Nope. Uh, oh, okay. We can move on to another author, Sallust, Gaius Celestius Crispus. He was a Roman historian, also contemporary with Caesar, also knew Caesar personally, like had dinner with the guy. He mentions uh, Gaius Julius Caesar, which is he mentions other Julius Caesars big family but he mentions Gaius Julius Caesar several times in his book the Catiline conspiracy which is a conspiracy to like overthrow the senate like but before it was cool when Caesar did it um and that was written in 42 BCE and that records a speech made by Caesar Julius Caesar to the senate and so it goes on for like several paragraphs yet another author catalyst uh contemporary of Caesar he was a po poet he didn't like Caesar very much and uh, in he, his poem, 57, I'm sure he had a better name for it. That's the name we know it by. He calls Caesar a diseased pervert, a philater, a stain who likes young girls and says he has shallow lore. So he's not like learned or educated and a few other not very complimentary things. So <laughs> Sounds like my kind of guy. <laughs> not a fan of this Julius Caesar guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So those are just some of the contemporary. There's probably more. Those are the ones I was able to find. Um, and again, that's not even listing all of the things we have from these people. This is just a kind of a brief overview. But wait, there's more because we also have non-contemporaries. Just like for Jesus, we had people who weren't contemporary with him writing. Caesar also has non-contemporaries, uh, including so these people would be writing in like the usually like the first or second century. Um, but Ovid, 
who was uh, a poet. He was born the year after Caesar was assassinated. So not quite a contemporary, but he writes of the deification of Caesar and his adopted son, Augustus. Um, so very shortly after the periods, he's writing about this guy. Other authors would include Tacitus. We mentioned him before with Jesus. He talks about Caesar, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, Plutarch, and the list goes on. These are people who were living at a time when they had copies of the Gallic Wars, the commentaries, all these other writings that we have, they had them and referenced them and are talking about them. So um, they aren't contemporaries with Caesar, but they aren't far beyond, and they are referencing other things we know are contemporary with Caesar. So we know that those things existed for sure in the first century. Yep. So one of the things I've heard often in this debate between the evidence for Jesus and the evidence for Caesar is that, you know, the, the P52, like we have the manuscripts really early. We know, obviously we know when they're written, but we have the manuscripts really early. I think there's some truth to that, isn't there, when it comes to Caesar? Sure. I mean, if if you want a prize for distance between writing the earliest manuscript, then the New Testament wins. There you go. Congratulations. The oldest copy. So like we said, John written in like the 90s, maybe early 100s, earliest piece we have, P52 written maybe 125. So maybe a decade or two later, possibly. Right? That's pretty close. Definitely way closer than we have for anything that Jesus wrote. Uh, the copies of Caesar, the Civil Wars, these all, basically all the writings I said, uh, with maybe some exceptions, are medieval, like 900s to 1400s uh, CE. So definitely centuries after the fact. So that is a point in the New Testament's favor. However, there's more to it than just distance between thing writing and first manuscript, right? Um, first of all, these books are not said to have come, there was no like oral tradition that these are being based off. They're being based off writings, right? Of people at the time, allegedly at least. Um, these books are written by people whose name we know, ancient authors who were known by other ancient authors whose works we also have. There's like a whole web and these people are like talking about each other. Yeah, and they're referencing each other all the time. Right. So like these, this is, a, this is not just a single source and a single source. Like these are people who read each other's works and are talking about each other and are talking about the things that other, the, each other are doing, you know? Um, so for Caesar to have not lived, then not only would the books written by Caesar have to be penned by somebody else um, or not even dictated him by, by him or whatever, but so would the works of Cicero and all of his letters, Sallust, Tacitus, Pliny's, Suetonius, Plutarch, all of these books would have had to have been forged or interpolated in some way and altered. And in many cases, not altered by a couple letters. Caesar's like written like in um, in Cicero's writings in particular, Caesar is throughout these things. You couldn't just make a little kind, tiny correction. They're all over. Right. Right. And so someone would have to, you. You would have to have modified all of these different copies from all of like exactly the same argument they talk about for the reliability of the Gospels. You can make the same argument a hundredfold more for Caesar because of the interconnectivity of these different books by different authors who would have had to have been edited in such a way to have still been coherent and everything, but also not leave any evidence of having been edited. So yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm waiting for the sham wow moment, but wait, there's more <laughs> <laughs> because unlike for uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the poor rabbi from rural Galilee, Julius Caesar was kind of a big deal, you guys. And so while apologists always want to focus on the manuscripts, because that's where they're strong, right? They want to talk about the manuscripts and look how that's much better all our manuscripts got. are. That's what we got, right? So that's yeah. what we're going to talk about. Well, we don't need to restrict ourselves to the manuscripts, my friends. We've got other stuff, stuff you could buy for like four grand if you wanted to. So uh, one of those things we have are coins. Uh, so you remember the Gallic Wars and how it was like uh, a propaganda piece basically for Caesar and how great he was? Well, in the ancient world, if you wanted to do propaganda, if you want to do like, like make yourself popular and like do some publicity, what you did was you put it on something that everybody cares about. Money. Money. Yes, sir. So Caesar and his friends minted coins uh, about his stuff, things that he had done. So here are some. Uh, and again, this will not be an exhaustive list. There are more coins than this, but I'm just going to show some of the best ones. Um, so this coin it minted in 49 BCE. You can see this is these are coins for Caesar's Gallic Wars, like celebrating his conquest of Gaul to like make sure everyone knows about it. So on one hand, you've got uh, Mars, the god of war, and the other side you've got uh, Carnesas, which are uh, Gallic um, 
instruments, wind instruments, and uh, two shields, one oval, one round, in the style that we know Gallic warriors used. So these are like symbols of conquest of Gaul. But, but that's just like a conquest. Like anybody could have conquested Gaul, right? Right. Like maybe this is a King Arthur situation where like somebody else did the conquest, but later this Julius Caesar guy got attached to it, right? Yeah. Fair enough. How about this one? On this this one, one side you got some lady's face, doesn't matter. The important things on the other side, you have a dude who is holding trophies, like the shield from before, Carnesa's Gallic trophies, with the word Caesar under it. This, <laughs> importantly, this one in 48, this was the one that Caesar minted. So the other one was invented by his friend who like wanted to tell the story. Caesar wanted to make sure that nobody there was zero confusion as to who this coin was for. Put my name on it right there. Boom. Yes, sir. Yeah. In that uh, vein, here's another one. Uh, the elephant coin. This one minted in 49. This one um, uh, is minted to celebrate um, Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon. And so you've got an elephant trampling something. It There's debates as to what it's trampling. Um, but what's important is under the elephant is the word Caesar. And on the other side of the coin are symbols relating to the office of the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest, which is an office that was held in Rome, not necessarily by the person in charge. It was another office that a person could hold. Caesar held that office. And then when he became a dictator, he's like, you know what? I like this office. I'm going to keep it. And then from then on, every ruler of Rome was the high priest. And now the Pope is the high priest. And I think what's important to note is like, we're corroborating what's on this coin with things that we have in the writings. Too. Exactly. So these are coinage, that physical uh, objects that these can be dated to the time period. So this isn't some manuscript we found like in the four. Like you find a manuscript that was written in the 14th century. Well, who, what happened before that? This was a coin that we can date and was minted in the first century BC, right? So, and it is telling us things that corroborate all the details written in Gallic Wars, details we know about Caesar's life, and critical to this thing it has the dude's name right on it <laughs> yeah this would be the equivalent of finding a coin minted in jerusalem in 30 ce with a cross on it on one side and on the back side jesus like or pontius pilate or pontius pilate yeah pontius pilate and like jesus like both of those things yeah. on there like that would, would be amazing I think that could plausibly perhaps have happened if for some reason Pontius Pilate was super stoked as a having like, I've like, killed this dude. This one dude. Uh, yeah. he, that's a thing he could have done. Right. And so like, I don't think it's likely that we would have that. I'd be shocked if that thing ever happened, you know, but this is the kind of thing that, yeah. like, that would be comparable. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've got more, but there's, there's more coins, not just about uh, Caesar's conquest, but also about him being in charge. So there's a whole bunch of coins about him being dictator. So the one on the top left there has the word Caesar dictator Cordum, Caesar dictator for the fourth time. So he was like renewing his dictatorship over time before he eventually just made himself dictator for life. As you see on that second coin, Caesar dictator perpetuo, Caesar dictator for life. Uh, again, uh, confirming things we know from history. And just for fun, on the right side, uh, another way you can confirm that somebody lived is you can confirm that they died. And so that one is the Ides of March coin was minted by Brutus, the dude who stabbed Caesar. And so it's got eyes of March with two daggers and a, a helmet that like signifies liberty basically in at the time. Um, so this is like Brutus saying, hey, I'm the guy who killed the tyrant, you know? <laughs> so like. That's pretty good. But there's more than just coins, right? We have other things too. So Right. So we could go on and on and on about the physical evidence we have for Julius Caesar. Um, we won't. You can check out a paper that we'll link in the description, uh, Epigraphical Notes on Julius Caesar, if you want to see. There's a bunch of like inscriptions on statues that used to hold statues of Julius Caesar um, from the time when he lived, uh, because if he's going to put his face on coins, he's going to put his face in marble, too. Um, so like, you can find more physical evidence, too. But we don't even need to restrict ourselves to physical evidence, either, as awesome as it is, right? There's even more evidence. And here I'm talking about, uh, well, two things. One, uh, remember that other guy, Caesar Augustus? Remember how he wasn't named Caesar Augustus when he was born? That wasn't his given name. He took on the name Caesar because he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, right? He took on this name to reference that other guy, and like he got his wealth and power and stuff. 
and so like but this is a person who allegedly was the son adopted son of this person and took on this name because of this other person at the time when everyone living like if he had just like made up a dude like oh right. yeah julius he's the guy who conquered gaul like who the hell are you talking about you know <laughs> like it's pretty good right yeah and so this isn't like he took on the name of like romulus or venus or somebody like from the hazy date or hercules or whatever like this is a dude who like literally just exists just lived and just died so any evidence we have for caesar augustus is evidence for julius caesar too so that brings up a whole new boatload of coins and manuscripts and statues and just mountains of stuff and you can go further than this you can even just talk about the course of history right like rome was a republic for sure and became an empire for sure so somebody had to be in the middle somebody had to bring that about you know um and this like goes into the kind of claim we're making here uh this is an important distinction between the claims being made about caesar and the fact that he existed and jesus rising from the dead which is the connection that billy graham and others are trying to make right on the one hand you've got a military commander of a militaristic nation expanding his borders and consolidating power right pretty mundane claim as claims go on the other hand if you're going with just like the historian's version of jesus it's just a rabbi who's apocalyptic prophet preaching things like that's pretty mundane but if you're going with a triumphalist view now you're bringing in magic miracles water to wine healing raising for the dead all that stuff yeah, not the same thing not the same thing at all right there's a reason it's not like jesus is the only person in the ancient world who is said to do miracles right the emperor vespasian allegedly heal the blind but no historian is like debating about whether or not that actually happened like right. nobody thinks that happened you know uh but the evidence you would need to say that happened is more than just one dude said it one time you know so from like if you find that writing of the emperor vespasian did the thing that might tell you hey vespasian is a real person that doesn't tell you that he actually cured the blind yeah i think this just blows it away for me like and i don't think you emphasize enough how much extra evidence there is than what you presented yeah. here like Th yeah this is touching the surface th i know we say that a lot but this is seriously just scratching the surface i'm not yeah. a historian i'm just an enthusiast who thinks rome is cool and like this is just the base level of stuff i do want to thank uh brennan kyer who's a listener who helped me uh and he has an undergrad in history like jared does but he focused on rome and so he helped me pull together some of these sources but neither of us are like professional historians or anything nope. and like so there is so much more that could be said and even with just this little bit it is clear the evidence for julius caesar's existence is order of magnitude larger than the evidence for jesus of nazareth which is interesting right because the christians who are normally saying this make it seem like there's almost no evidence for caesar right I don't like, where does this come from? I mean, obviously I know where it comes from. It's comes from repeating what you heard somebody else say. Exactly. Right? And like, if you spent any amount of like, like just mere minutes on Google looking for this, it is obvious. Uh, <laughs> like, like this claim is so easily debunked. It's ridiculous. Clearly anybody who repeats it has just not looked into it yeah. at all. And this would be like skepticism 101. All right. All right, guys, today we're going to learn out how to find out if Caesar was real or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could not ask for an easier task. Uh, so yeah, it, please stop saying this, Christians. It's not doing any good to your case because you can make a good case that Jesus of Nazareth existed. You should be making it without saying ridiculous, absurd things like this, right? Don't compare the historical evidence for Jesus. Certainly don't compare the historical evidence for the resurrection to the existence of Jesus Christ. And like, again, this isn't always just like, uneducated people saying nt right has sent things that can are not the same but can be easily misconstrued as this uh so maybe be a little bit more careful when you're talking too yeah. so hopefully we've put this one to bed before we go though we do want to give you our bias of the day uh today's bias of the day is confirmation bias hmm. probably the most common bias ever um yeah it's, it's interesting we as human beings have a tendency to find the thing that we're looking for right it's like we just yep. there it is 
seek and ye shall find. I can't tell you how many times I've been told, hey, if you are looking for God and like are, are want to find God, you'll find him. I'm like, yeah, that's confirmation bias. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So confirmation bias is a bias that people have where we tend to um, find what we're looking for. And more than that, we will more readily accept and remember information that confirms what we thought. So if you find yep. something that agrees with you, you're more likely to think it's reliable. You're more likely to think it's true. You're more likely to remember it later than if you find something that disagrees with you. Yeah. Sometimes you'll hear people say, uh, counting the hits and ignoring the misses, that's confirmation bias. Exactly. So. That's kind of how cold reading works, where like yeah. people just rattle off a bunch of information. You ignore all the things that are wrong, and you remember the thing that was right because it confirms what you'd want to be true. Right. Um, sort of similar here. Uh, so... And this is a bias everybody has. No one is immune to bias. So the way you would defend against this is basically, uh, so knowing biases, defending them, it's kind of like defending against demons. If you know their name, they're powerless against you, sort of. <laughs> uh, if you know that confirmation bias is a thing, then you can just uh, go through life just kind of aware of it. Uh, do your best to disconfirm what you know. If you're doing like your skeptical research into something or just like, looking into something and you find you're only finding evidence that is what you would like it to be. That should be a warning sign to you. It's, maybe you're right. Maybe that is just where the evidence is. Right. But you should like, should put up an antenna, like uh, maybe, maybe I'm just like not looking at enough sources. Maybe I'm not looking at things that are critical. Maybe I'm just not perceiving the things that I'm reading. It could just be that you just found all the really good yeah. evidence that could, could be. be it too, but you yeah. need to ask yourself, why is this so easy? <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. So, and maybe it is that easy, but maybe you're wrong. And so the best way you can do it is just try to prove yourself wrong. If you work to prove yourself wrong and you are a fail, then better chance that you were right to begin with. So basically do science. Yeah, that's that's how that's kind of how the scientific method works. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> so that's our show. Uh, thanks for tuning in all the way to the end. If you're still here, please do uh, leave a like if you liked it, uh, comment and let us know if there's something we missed. Um, if there's another historical figure that you think is better evidence than Jesus, there are many. There are plenty, so many more. You Most guys. of them. <laughs> <laughs> not all of them. Certainly not. So, and even some like ones that you would think would be well evidence. Like there are there are other rulers of Rome for whom there's very little right. uh, evidence for like not like there's just not much known about them. So it's not crazy. Like Jesus does beat some of them, but like not not many. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, comment and if you can think of any, or if you have just any cool facts about Rome, because I love Rome. Uh, so please do let us know in the comments. Um, if you think we left out evidence for Jesus, please mm. let us know. Yes, because while we did did a, a very surface level kind of glaze of the evidence for Caesar, uh, what we said was pretty much all the evidence for Jesus. Like that's pretty much all there is. So like, yeah. I mean, there's more detail into that, but yeah. like that's it. Yeah. yeah, we could have dug deeper into each one, but the the sources we cite are the only ones that exist. So if you know another one, please do tell us because that would be uh, very good to know. Um, anyway, so subscribe, hit the bell, so you know uh, you won't miss next episode, which I think will be mythicism, but we'll see. Um, but until next time, remember you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out. <laughs>